Oh, good morning. Uh, my name is Josh. It is not my birthday. Uh, so for those of you who have told me happy birthday, I really appreciate it. But it's actually, I see up there Briggs walking out. So my son, my son thought it'd be really funny to put on a sign that it was my birthday. Uh, so thank you for that. And I'll, I'll, here's the thing. I, I turned 39 in February, and I'll make sure you have plenty of notice. Okay? So it's not like, I, you know, some people are like, no one ever told me happy birthday. And I'm like, because I didn't know it was your birthday. You'll know it's my birthday, I promise, when it gets close. Okay? I just want you to know that. Um, if we haven't met, uh, you haven't met one of our staff, our staff would love to get to know you if, 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 you're, if you're new around here. And there's a simple way to do that. Back of that bulletin, love for you to kind of self-identify. I uh, want you to feel safe here, self-identify. And um, the simplest way to do that, right on the back of the bulletin, when you head out and program, whatever you call that thing, um, there's a little info center out in the lobby. And uh, we have a gimmick for you. Just want to be clear, that's what it is. We have a t-shirt we'd like to give you because we'd like to have your information. Not because we want to sell it to someone, not because we want to hound you or show up during dinner time and knock on the door, but because we actually would like to get to know you and start some kind of dialogue together. The Bible says it this way, it's not good for humanity to be alone. Uh, we just agree with that. And so our goal here would be that we'd love for you to find some community as, as you see fit. Okay, no pressure there. Um, and so if you are new, here's kind of how it works each week. Uh, uh, we, we talk uh, uh, through the Bible. We open it up and read it. And usually it's in you know, kind of a clump of a, a motif or an idea or some scriptures where um, it's kind of working through. And it takes a little bit more than a week. So we call it a series. And uh, we're actually on week seven of this. This has been a, a pretty long one. We've got one more week next week called the Jesus Creed. You see it behind me. And I... Uh, so here's kind of the big premise of this, okay? A creed is just a, a set of beliefs uh, that guide your life, right? Well, I wish I could catch you up on the last six weeks of stuff. Don't have time, but there's lots of information out there. You can go to clcfamily.church. You can listen to all the sermons. Actually, you can also listen to uh, kind of the questions about the sermons. All that's there. So you've got an hour each week of uh, questions that we answer about the sermon plus the sermon. So uh, you can get back on that. Uh, but I'll just catch you up to speed to what I think is pertinent for today, right? And so kind of this idea of Jesus' creed is that uh, creeds are just a set of beliefs that guide our lives. And you don't have to be a Christian, don't have to be spiritual, don't have to be mystical, don't have to be anything to have a creed. Because the reality is you all have them, we all have them, and it's not a judgment, it's just we all have them. And if there's a set of beliefs that guide our lives, that would explain why you cut your grass, why uh, you grocery shop, why you go to work, why you pay your mortgage, right? Just have these, uh, why you uh, looked in the mirror this morning, why you brushed your teeth, whatever those things are, right? There's this, these beliefs that you have that kind of guide your life. You go, well, I don't want to have bad breath and I don't want to, I have to replace my teeth, so I'm going to brush my teeth, right? Just a belief. We don't want those things to happen and then an action step as a result. And so the reality is all of us have them and here's the suspicion that we've been operating with for the last six, seven weeks, right? It is this. It's that while we all have these creeds, these beliefs that guide our life, I am suspicious, and I'm suspicious of this because I can do some kind of internal reflection, right? That these creeds that we're operating with, whether you're a Christian, non-Christian, um, these creeds that kind of guide our life, they still leave us wanting. There's something about our life that we go, is it really just this? Do I just pay the bills so I can have a house and then get up every day, year after year after year after year, to eventually one day arrive just safely at death? I mean, is that, is that the goal? And even for those of us in the Christian realm, um, we go... Is this it? I just go to church, I empty my sin bucket, I fill it back up during the week, and I go to church and I empty my sin bucket, like just week after week, and we don't really see any real tangible progress, right? And so the suspicion is, if that's the case, then perhaps, 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 for all of us inside the church, outside the church, there is some work we could do to find a better life. In fact, the reason it's called the Jesus Creed is uh, Jesus... Uh, who we would claim as God. He, he made that same claim. He made the same claim that he was God. And we had claimed that he's the one who came to, and, uh, to uh, save us, to give us hope, give us restoration, to give us life and life to the fullest, right? Um, Jesus made all those claims to the point where people, religious people and irreligious people didn't like that everyone, that he was telling everyone to follow him and trust him to the point where they, they murder him, right? And he's put on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago and dies. And that'd be a really, really sad story. But then he comes back to life, which by the way is different than how every other religion has started, right? Uh, in the first century, 2,000 years ago, you can uh, kind of pay attention to this. There were multiple, multiple different kind of revolutions that began with these founders who would declare that they were God or that they had God's message, and they would lead a revolution, and lots and lots of people would start following, right? And then something would happen, like always happens. The, the founder would die, right? And then all these people go, oh, well, I don't know where to go to church this week because that guy's not there anymore. And so typically it would happen either that revolution, that false worldview, whatever it is, would either cease at that point, or the son or grandson or the nephew or niece would pick up the torch and try to carry it a little bit further. 
until they died as well, right? And so you had all these different kind of worldviews that were popping up that all the founders just kept dying. By the way, you can look at all the founders of all the world religions, and here's the things that's different about all those in Jesus, is all of them have a tomb still. There's a place where people go and mourn the loss of that founder, that leader. But Jesus claims he's God, gets murdered for it, and then gets put in a tomb. He dies, and then he comes back to life, which makes his story, his declaration, much different than every other story that's ever been there, right? There is no place of mourning. You can't go to his tomb and weep because he's no longer there, right? There's not a place to go lay flowers at his grave. I mean, this is a completely different thing. And so after that happened, after Jesus dies and comes uh, back to life, people really start thinking about all of his words and going, what do these things mean? And in Jesus' words, he says a couple of things. One of the things he says is that the enemy, the spiritual force, uh, comes to steal, kill, and destroy, right? There's this something, we can't quite identify it, but there's this oppression that we experience. It just feels like there's someone against us, something against us. And says that, that, that Jesus says, yeah, there's actually something in our world, this broken world, that just comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And you might not believe all that, but you would believe there's evil. You'd believe that it existed, and that would point to, yep, there is an an enemy who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says this. He says, but I come to give you life in abundance or in, like fool, right? And so he makes this claim that there is a better way to live. You can't experience that. Well, he also says it this way right before he's about to get arrested, then murdered. Um, and he basically says, hey, guys, I, I am. This is talking to disciples, knowing that it, it, it get captured in writing and made it make its way to us 2,000 years later. He says, I am the way. Meaning, if you're looking for a, a good way to live, both now and for all eternity, right? I am the truth. Meaning, there is, it's not some like, uh, truth isn't some feeling you have, but there is an absolute truth. I am the way, I am the truth. And then he says, I am the life. Meaning, if you're really looking for this good life, okay? That's for Christians, not Christians. If you're looking for it, the only place by which it's going to be found is in Jesus. Now, that sounds really arrogant and dogmatic. But when Jesus says these things, he's not trying to be offensive. He's actually going, he created you, he knew you, he made you, and he has a plan for you. And he goes, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, no one gets to the Father. No one gets back into this right relationship. No one gets back to their, his, their, their heavenly Father, their dad. No one does it. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father but through me. So he's not being dogmatic. He's not being closed-minded, but he is being specific. Going, if you're looking for a good life, and you're suspicious that it's out there, but you haven't experienced it yet, both within the Christian realm or outside of it, Jesus is going, there's only one way by which you can find that. That's me. Hence the reason for seven weeks we've been working on this idea of a Jesus creed. So here's uh, the other thing that Jesus says, really, really important. John the Baptist, one of the guys who kind of were, one of the guys, kind of the forerunners for Jesus, the trumpeteer uh, of sorts, that kind of showed up to go, hey, pay attention to this guy. What he said, what Jesus said is he said, repent for this kingdom that you're looking for, the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, depending on which way you're talking about it there. He says it both ways in different gospels. Repent for the kingdom of God is near or at hand. And that word repent that Jesus talks about there, that John the Baptist talks about, literally is translated change your mind. Change your mind or change the way you think. And so what we've kind of been kind of walking through for six weeks, this is week number seven. Like I said, I can't review the whole thing. Hopefully one day we'll get it all in written form so you'll have it. No promises, but that's the goal. Is this, this idea that we have to, if we want to experience this kingdom that we're all looking for, you don't have to be a Christian to look for it, right? And if you want to experience it, then the way by which that starts is you have to change your mind or change your thoughts, right? And so what we've kind of been working through this is biblical, this is philosophical, this is psychological, this is sociological. So every, every field you look at, this is just the reality of how this plays out. So what we see here is that you, um, when you change your thoughts, what ends up happening or change the way you think, it changes your beliefs, right? And as you change your beliefs, remember a creed is a set of beliefs that guide your life. Guess what happens? Eventually, eventually, it changes your behavior, right? So thoughts determine your beliefs, beliefs determine your behaviors, and so you're going, you want some different behaviors in your life? You want to have different things to do? Then the way by which you do that is actually change your beliefs. You want to change your beliefs? The only way by which that happens is you've got to change the way you think. So last week, we, we kind of nailed down on this first one pretty heftily. So we've been talking about it for six weeks, trying to help you understand that Jesus is making these declarations. These last three weeks are going to put some feet to this. And so last week, we spent some time talking about thoughts. And what we saw is Jesus show up in his hometown in Nazareth, and he makes some claims to some religious people. And they don't like his claims. Because the claims that he's making is there is a place for freedom and a place for joy and a place for hope, but it only is going to be found in him. And they go, no, no, we like our religion. No, no, we like our synagogue. We got it figured out. We like our way of life. We're not really interested. And what Jesus says is he came to give all this hope and freedom. But then he talks about who he gave the hope and freedom to. And guess what he says? The blind, the oppressed, 
the imprisoned, the malnourished, right? These people who uh, had a kind of an understanding that they needed help. And he was speaking to these religious people going, here's the real problem. You haven't come to this conclusion that you need something fixed, right? And so the big idea of last week is our thoughts, eventually, you can't always change what you think about, but you can change the way by which you think it because some of your thoughts are true. Like some of you are in pain. And you can't just go, I'm not in pain, I'm not in pain. No, you're in pain. You can't go, I can't fix this, I can't fix this. And you go, yeah, you, you can't fix it, right? So um, the, the, the understanding last week that Jesus was saying this, at some point, if you want to get on this new way, this new life, foundationally for all of us, doesn't matter if you're Christian or non-Christian, there is one prerequisite. And it's that at some point you can come to the conclusion that you have a condition you cannot fix. And frankly, as we think about the gospel and think about the church and think about those things, this is the hardest this is the hardest thing for us to come to that conclusion. In our arrogance and our pride, there's something in us that thinks we can fix it. And until you come to the point that you go, I cannot fix myself, right? Then you will never get past that. You'll stay in this weird cycle where you'll come up with new New Year's resolutions. You'll read new self-help books thinking that the answer is just around the corner. And Jesus is going, as long as you stay there, you will never find the freedom that you're looking for, which is so interesting, particularly if you've never been in the church world before. You're assumption, our suspicion, is that you're coming to a place where all the people in here think they have it figured out, right? And so you feel like you're so different than the rest of people in there. I didn't grow up in church. I don't know the church things. These people are church people. They have their life together. They tuck in their shirts. They part their hair. Their life, their, their families are in order. They don't fight. They didn't fight in the car. They actually pray before every meal, whatever those things is. You have all these understandings, right? And the reality is all those understandings are 100% false. So I want you to know, if you don't believe in this stuff, first time here, you are in a very uh, welcoming and affirming place. Because the one thing foundationally that begins for us to be Christians is us to come to conclusions that we cannot fix ourselves. We're not near as good as we want you to think we are. We're not even near as good as we think we are. So the one thing that we all have in common is there is a condition that we can't fix. And that would be really, really bad and really, really depressing if that was the end of the story. But that begins the process of going, I have a condition, and if I can't fix it, either it can't be fixed, right? But just because you can't fix it doesn't mean it can't be fixed. Or either it can't be fixed, which is a lie, or someone or something has to be able to fix it. And the God of the universe steps on this planet and goes, I came to make you right with me, right? His goal was you and him forever. You and him forever, right? And the beautiful thing about this is he's not looking forward to you and him forever someplace in the distance. He's not waiting for you to die to get accepted into heaven Jesus says the goal is you and him forever. And guess when he wants that to start? Now. Now. The kingdom of God is available to you now. And so that's this crazy idea of what this creed looks like. Is Jesus going, you have a condition. So you can go back and listen to this and go in. If there's some things in your life that you go, I can't fix it. I keep trying to fix that. And it cannot be fixed. You're in good company. So your solution is either to be devastated or go, well, if I can't fix me, then perhaps someone else can. And if someone else can, who would be capable of doing that? Your mother-in-law? Right? Your spouse? Your kids? Your doctor? Right? Who would be capable of fixing you? Well, the only one capable of fixing you is the one who created you, right? And so creator God can fix you and proves it by stepping on to this planet, right? And so perhaps, perhaps you can change your thoughts. Now, the next piece of that is, and you can go back and listen to the sermon, is, well, how do I know if my thoughts have actually changed and actually believe that? Because here's kind of the, the big dilemma for us, and this is why fundamental churches can get people to the altar every single week, is because there's this idea of going, do you know that 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 when you die, you're going to heaven, right? And when, when the pastor said that to me growing up, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, maybe even the 10th or 11th, do you know? I'm like, yeah, I know. But he gets to that 12th one. It's like, ah, oh, there's that number of perfection. We'll talk about that later. I'm like, I don't know. And so I come up, right? So there's just this, this battle in this that we're so suspicious of our own thoughts and our own beliefs. So the big question is, do you really believe this? Now for Christians, do you really believe this? Do you really believe that you have a condition you can't fix and that only Jesus can? Do you believe that? Well, here's the good news. Today, we're going to figure out whether or not you really believe it. And I'm not going to tell you. You're going to have this litmus in your life to be able to determine that, right? And if you're brand new to this thing, you might be going, yep, there's a condition. I can't fix myself, but I'd like to be fixed. Well, today, you're going to see how that can happen. A real fix. Not puppies and rainbows, not nice and soft, but there is something in this that's really, really beautiful. So you go, well, how in the world do I know if I actually believe that Jesus is my hero, that Jesus is the solution for all this? Some of you can write it down, you can keep thinking it, but here's a really, really good tale. You ready for this? 
is actually an indicator in your life every single day that reveals what you believe. You ready for it? There is something in all this that can tell you every single moment of every single day what you believe. And see, you're, you're interested in this, aren't you? This is good. You didn't know admission price, nothing. This is, this is good stuff, right? And here's where it is. You ready? You ready for this? There's something in your life that tells you what you believe, and you, all oh, these are so fun. Some of you dudes are like, I came to church with my wife, and now i got to talk about my feelings, right? There is a way by which you can know what you believe, and the way that you know what you believe is you pay attention to what you feel. So there's two parts of feelings. One, first you have to identify them. The second one is then you have to feel them, right? So there's two different pieces, and our feelings, every single time, regardless of whether we want them to, whether we try to stop them from it, they reveal to us what we're actually believing. So you want to know what you believe, then pay attention to your feelings. For example, think about the last time you were really sad. That's a feeling, right? And um, think about the tears that you shed. Maybe uncontrollably, maybe inconsolably, right? Maybe quietly, maybe it was just that one tear and it was the first time that tear came out of your face or maybe it was that one tear that just unleashed the infinite tears that's just been bottled up. Have you ever thought about why you did that? No, this is crazy. This is crazy, right? Because we're physical human beings, right? I mean, we, we pick up things, we do things. We understand that we are a physical body made up of chemicals. But do you understand there's something else going on in us that controls that physical piece? Do you understand? There's something that you feel something that happens inside you that as it happens it unleashes something maybe in your brain maybe in your heart that unleashes something that activates some kind of tear duct right there's something immaterial mystical spiritual whatever term you want to use something immaterial in your world that somehow activates something physically in your life this is really important because if that's possible if there's something in your spiritual realm that can activate your physical realm then perhaps if we can figure out our beliefs then perhaps there's something here that can help us change the way that we act Right? And so if that's the case, you go, well, why in the world did you cry? Have you ever thought about it? Like, why in the world you cried when you got that bad news? When that person said that to you? When you heard that grandma died? Lost your job? There's something in this. Like, that sadness, those feelings are actually re- revealing something that you believe. Now, I'm going to tell you what you believe, okay? Not because I'm extra special or I got extra intuition to you. I just understand my own soul in this. Here's what you believe. Now, this is going to sound arrogant for a second because I'm going to use the word every or always and those terms saying, gosh, that's dogmatic. Every time you shed a tear of sadness, here's what your spirit's telling your body. Here's what they're telling. It wasn't supposed to be this way. Every single time you cry, every single time you feel sadness. Now, you might not realize this. That feeling is actually revealing something to you about what you believe, right? And that belief, deep down, what your spirit is telling your body, what your soul is feeling and your body is manifesting is this. This wasn't the way it was supposed to be. You weren't supposed to hurt this way. You weren't supposed to have relationships that were so damaged and so broken. You weren't supposed to have those accusations leveled at you. You weren't supposed to experience death from your spouse, your kid, or your grandmother. That was not how it was supposed to be. And the reason you feel all that is there's something in the spiritual world going what you are feeling and what is aching in you is a injustice in this world. That's why when you go to a funeral and you are so sad, that is a 100% appropriate response. Because you were not supposed to experience death in that way. That was not the plan. You see, all these feelings, you go, I don't know why I feel them. The reason you feel them is your soul is telling you there is something wrong with this. There is something wrong in our world that's not supposed to be that way. And your soul is correct. It wasn't supposed to be this way. You see, the goal was you and Jesus, you and God forever. And we, in all of our brokenness and all of our evil and all of our mistakes, we ushered in this really, really broken world. And day after day, people are just colliding into each other, both physically and emotionally, right? And what we're experiencing is all this pain. And when you feel those things, the reasons you feel those things is because, because you weren't supposed to experience this. This wasn't the way the world was supposed to be. No, how about all that joy and happiness? When you have all that joy and happiness, even if it's misguided, that shot of, you know, you know uh, whatever it is into your brain that makes you feel all this joy and happiness. What is those feelings telling you? What if it's telling you more than just that you should feel a moment in this moment and that's good? What if it's a glimpse of going, see this, this, this is a glimpse of the way that things are supposed to be. 
right? And so in all those feelings, we got to feel them because we got to acknowledge that there's a broken world that we live in. And we got to feel the feelings. That's where Jesus says, mourn with those who are mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. Because we got to experience these feelings that tell us deep down in our psyche, deep down in our soul, that there is something better that we're yearning for. And this is just a small glimpse of it. Here's what happens a lot of times. For me, I'll get so excited about this really good feeling and then there'll just be this whisper. Like I'll be, I'll, I'll have this really great moment with my kids and then in a moment I'm enjoying it and all of a sudden there'll be this whisper, right? And that goes, well, it won't always be this way. They won't be in your house that long. They could get sick. You could lose your job. You know, all these different things. I'm in the middle of this moment of rejoicing and joy. And what kind of sneaks in? This fear, right? So you want to figure out what you believe. Look at your feelings. Now, it's more complicated than that, okay? That sounds nice and easy. And I promise we're about to get the scriptures in Luke chapter 8. But here's one last thing I just going to point out to you here, okay? What you do with those feelings really indicates what you believe. And so there's two different charts that we kind of go through here. Uh, we got one of two options. One of them we'd say is faith. There's the godly thing. We just trust Jesus fully and we'll get there. I don't want to give you puppies and rainbows. It's not that simple. Okay. Or for many of us, it's fear. Fear. Those feelings. Like when I start, when I deal with death, when I deal with anxiety and all those things are, all of a sudden I just start playing this out. Now, what, what we've probably heard in the past, and I just want to kind of give some clarity to this, that we kind of think that faith is the opposite of fear, right? It's faith versus fear. Don't have faith. Don't have fear. You know, instead put faith. I don't think that's accurate. Now, this is just my opinion, okay? So take it for what it's worth. My biblical my opinion. I don't think faith and fear are opposites. I think fear is just misplaced faith. Right? So faith and fear, they're not at war with each other. All fear is, it's still faith. It's just faith in the wrong thing. Right? Faith and fear, they're not at war with each other. They're actually the same thing. Faith is going, I'm putting my, play, my trust in someone or something that can fix me. Fear is going, I'm putting it in a place that can't fix it. And guess where that place usually is? Me. Me. That's where I put it. In this place where I, trust me, right? So Seth Godin says this. He says, anxiety is failing in advance. Right? I don't know if you do it, but here's how it works for me, right? I get this anxiety in my life. Someone makes something, says something, does something. I feel something. I do something, whatever it is. And all of a sudden, I have all this fear, right? I have all these feelings. Oh, my gosh, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. What am I going to do? Is it going to be fixed? And then all of a sudden, what I do, what I do, okay? Don't judge me. You can, actually. It's fine. Um, uh, I, uh, I come up with worst-case scenarios. You don't do that, but that's what I do, right? I imagine losing my job. I imagine losing my family. I imagine someone dying. I imagine all these different things. And then guess what I do? I come up with all these bad scenarios. Then I come up with solutions to fix all those bad scenarios, right? You know how many times in my life I've reworked my resume, right? You know, some of you escape, uh, you escape the things you shouldn't look at on the computer, escape the things, relationships you shouldn't be in. My escape? is job boards. I kid you not. For my entire adult life, I'm talking about since I was 18, when I get overwhelmed and panicked, where I go and look, because I go look at the job boards. Imagine if there's another way I can fix all this stuff, right? And so what I do in the middle of whatever those moments are, I come up with the worst case scenario, then I come up with solutions that'll fix that worst case scenario. Now here's the problem. I've been doing this now, I'm 38. I've been doing this 20 years, maybe 30. Been aware of it for at least the last 15 you know how many of those worst case scenarios I've come up with I've actually had to deal with in real life? Zero. Zero. Not like one, not like 0.5%. No, there's been some mess in my life, right? But zero times have I been able to come up with a solution, come up with a plan, and actually gotten to implement it. Do you see how much anxiety and anger and frustration that happens? And so there's this thing in the middle of whatever those things are. I get these feelings, and then I would just respond and respond. And what I'm doing is telling myself, Josh, if anyone's going to be able to fix it, it's you. If it's, a, if it's to be, it's up to me. Do you understand how overwhelming that is? I bet you do. And I bet you're exhausted by it too. And so here's what that tells us. It tells us either we have to be on all the time and perform really, really well and fix all the things, which is what you feel, what I feel. And guess what? We're not that good at it. In fact, we're not good at it. And so the underlying of that belief that if it's to be, it's up to me is guess what? It's not going to be. It's just not going to be. Because if it's up to you, you're not going to be able to achieve the things you want to. You're not going to be able to fix the things you want to. And I have all these different feelings as a result of this. So then my next level is going, okay, first I fear being misrepresented and misunderstood. Woe is me. Let me put my hair in my eyes. You know, whatever it is. Like, I'm so misunderstood. If people really knew this, like all this kind of stuff. So I got to figure out how people can really understand me. That doesn't work. And then the next fear is that I'm going to be abandoned or alone. 
know if you have that one, but that's, that's the next thing for me. Now I'm dealing with all the alone, and man, if people, wow, that, that's not true, but if they really knew all the stuff about me, then I would be all by myself, right? So I'm spending all that kind of stuff. I'm imagining what Christmases are like by myself. Imagine my kids not coming home. I mean, crazy, right? But that's where I go, right? So the first one is being misunderstood. The second one is being alone and abandoned. And the third one is um, never being able to fix this. Just never being able to fix it. Right, just coming to this conclusion that it cannot be fixed. And if God can't fix this little thing in my life in this moment, then how in the world can he fix the big things? And so what we're going to see in this passage in Luke chapter 8 is there are some people that are having some chaos and crisis in their life, and it is bad. They are facing death. In fact, someone dies. They are facing years, more than a decade of pain and suffering and isolation. And so they have one of two options. They can live in this cycle that I live in, right, that you live in, where we put all of our... Because of our feelings, we put all of our faith in ourselves, and then are just exhausted. Or they can bottle it all up and bring it to the one who may not fix it in the way they want them to, but is the actual only one that can ever fix it. So here's the reality about the Jesus creed. I'm not telling you this because I want you to have these puppies and rainbows moments. I'm telling you this because if you don't follow this, you're going to live in a world of despair and hopelessness the rest of your life. And I'm not trying to uh, do fear-mongering over you because... You are not good enough to save yourself. You are not good enough to fix all your problems. And the better you are at it, when, when you're the type of person who people bring all your, their problems to you because you're really good at it, that doesn't make you feel better. It actually, actually exhausts you because deep down you know that there is a problem that you cannot fix. Maybe you can't put your finger on it. But so what I'm going to argue today, and this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to try to convince you that your best bet, in fact, your only bet to live a really good life is to figure out whatever those feelings are that tell you that this world is not the way it's supposed to be and bring all that to Jesus and go, you're the only one who can fix it. And I don't know if you'll fix it the way I'll like you to, but it sure beats the heck out of me trying to fix it because I am exhausted, okay? So we're gonna find two different people. Now, where we find Jesus is in Luke chapter eight. Uh, So what's just happened is, Jesus just preached back in, and kind of close to his hometown between Capernaum and, uh, and uh, Nazareth. He preaches this message on the kingdom. This is Luke chapter 7. He gives us all these like, parables to tell him what the kingdom's like, saying, look, what you're looking for, what you've all been looking for is the kingdom of God. Not someplace you get to later, but that it can be ushered in now. So Jesus does that, and you can imagine he preaches for a while, and he's exhausted. So he gets in a boat, and he goes across the Sea of Galilee. So you've got Mediterranean Sea, and between the Mediterranean Sea and all this area is the Sea of Galilee, and it's uh, about eight miles wide, 12 miles large. So it's a pretty big, uh, you know, lake. And Jesus hops in his boat to go across to kind of a pagan area, this area called the Capitalist. You'll see some neat things happen there uh, much later in the scriptures, two or three months later. And so when Jesus, so he's in the boat, he's tired, and all the disciples are on the boat, and he gets in the boat and he goes to sleep. This is where the weather starts getting rough. It's supposed to be a three-hour tour, you know I'm talking about? And uh, uh, that's for you over the age of 35, I guess. Like, I don't get it at all. Yeah, so sorry, guys. Um, so um, he's sleeping, weather's rough, and there starts crying out because, again, they come face-to-face with something. They're going, it's not supposed to be this way. We shouldn't be in fear of water. But here they are in fear of water, and they come to the conclusion they can't fix themselves. So they wake up Jesus. He hops up, calms the sea, and that's the end of that story. And then he pulls up to a new place, and the place he pulls up in Decapolis, he um, comes in contact, in connection to, face-to-face with this demoniac. That means someone who is um, absorbed and consumed by demons. You can ask questions about that. You want the sermon, and I'll talk about it on Tuesday, but not for today's cut, right? And, and so uh, Jesus does something pretty crazy. He tells uh, the, that, that evil force, tells the evil forces they don't get to exist in his people because his, he came to give life and life to the fullest, calls them out. They go in a bunch of pigs. The pigs run off the cliff. Really, really crazy story. And the people don't like it. They actually are really overwhelmed by that. That's fair, right? And so they go, get out of our town. So they kind of run Jesus off and he gets back in the boat and this demoniac, this guy, the garrison demoniac, um, he comes and says, take me with you. And Jesus goes, no, I can't take you with me because you've got to go tell the story to everyone there. What you see a couple months later is Jesus comes back to the same area and this is where he feeds, you know, 10,000 people. Pretty, pretty neat story. And so what we can uh, induce, deduce, whichever way that goes, that this guy's story really had an impact in people's lives. We're going to talk about story in uh, just a second. And then Jesus hops back in the boat, heads back over to kind of Capernaum, this little fishing village on the Sea of Galilee. This is where Peter's from. And when he gets there, there are a bunch of people waiting on him. And the reason they're waiting on him is because they have all sorts of feelings and all sorts of fears and all sorts of anxieties, right? And so we're going to see this interaction with Jesus and these people. Now, what's about to happen? Last thing I'll say before I open this up. Jesus is about to do some miraculous things. You know, he just calmed the water. He just healed this man of demonic possession, right? 
He's about to do two other miracles. And so it is important because we talked a little bit last week about miracles. And what the, I want you to understand kind of the purpose of miracles, okay? So he actually says to the people in Nazareth last week, he basically says, look, I, I'm not going to do miracles because they're not going to actually have the, the, the benefit that you want them to have. Like you, when we look at miracles, we kind of assume that the reason Jesus did, does them is kind of to, to help give credence to who he is, right? Let me, let me, I'm going to say these things and let me prove it's true. He does do that with the resurrection, right? And so they're like, hey, show us your true Jesus. And he's like, watch this, I'll pull my thumb off. Oh, you must be God then, right? Put it back on, whatever those things are. And so we kind of see these miracles as this understanding that Jesus does those to help us to firm up our faith. That is not at all. That's not even the primary or secondary or any kind of tertiary reason that Jesus does those things, right? He actually says, Paul says later, you Greeks, you just want a lot more information. That's not going to be enough for you. Hey, you Jews, you just want a lot of miracles. That's not going to be enough for you. So you go, why in the world does Jesus do miracles? Here's why. So um, when we think about miracles, what we understand is there's a natural order, right? And then what happens is God comes in and kind of uh, lords over the natural order and does something supernatural, right? So what it looks like is Jesus is taking the natural order and just doing something neat in the supernatural world just for a second. But that is not what a miracle is. Every time Jesus does a miracle, what he is doing is he's giving us a glimpse to the way things are supposed to be. He's giving us a glimpse to the way that things should be and will eventually one day be. So all those tears you feel, right? When someone dies, you do those things. And when he comes in and does miracles, he's going, let me give you a picture of what this is supposed to look like and one day will look like. And so what we're going to see in this moment uh, with these scriptures is Jesus is going to heal a lady who's had 12 years worth of issues. Deep, dark, painful, isolating issues. And we're going to see a dead person come back to life. And this isn't something go, wow, we believe in you, Jesus. He's going... This is what I am promised to give you, and one day it will be that way. No, this isn't what he does for everyone. This isn't how it works. But when he does miracles, it's always to give you a glimpse of what he is going to do in your life. I don't know when it is. I don't know if it's post-death. I don't know if it is in the resurrection. But there will be a day where there will be no more pain, sorrow, or for you, right? Sadness. And there will be a day where you will be perfectly alive, and your, li- your body will be perfectly alive, and everything will be the way that it was supposed to be. So when you see miracles, this is Jesus giving a very tiny glimpse of what he guarantees and promises for each of us, right? And so here we go. Luke chapter 8, really, really fun story. Jesus has just pulled up on the dock. Luke chapter 8, verse 40, here's what it says. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him. So they're all there, they're waiting, for they were all expecting him. So they got all their issues uh, you know, Aunt Sally's got her feet out with the bunions. You know, another person is there asking for like a, you know, a, a, you know, a crown for their mouth or tooth, right? You got all sorts of stuff, right? You got uh, someone going, hey, I'm actually like, I'm, I'd like some LASIK surgery, Jesus. Whatever those are, they're all there. And Jesus shows up and they're all expecting him. Verse 41, then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house. Really important here tells us who this guy is. His name's Jairus. This is important for the scriptures. And uh, not only is this uh, shared in Luke chapter 8, it's also shared in Mark chapter 5. So that um, multiple gospels tell the story. So this is the the biographer Luke writing the story, but there's multiple authors that do this. And so one thing it says, when you point out the name, that's really important because when they would have gotten this in the first century, someone could have gone and had this conversation with Jairus to kind of affirm it. So this is like a footnote, but it also says he's a synagogue leader. So that means he's a, he's a pastor in the church. Now, this is in a Jewish church. They don't believe that Jesus is Lord. They actually don't even like Jesus in this way because he's standing in the way of the temple taxes. He's standing in the way of um, the congregants coming to church. They're going, why in the world would we come to your synagogue when we can just follow Jesus everywhere, right? I mean, so like Jesus is getting these followers like he's the Grateful Dead band and people are following him all up the East Coast and then out West. Oh, I gotta go to Red Rocks and see Jesus, whatever that is, right? And so here's, here's where it is. And so these synagogue leaders didn't like Jesus. But this guy says his name is Jairus and he is a pastor. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if he's the teaching pastor. I don't know if he's the song leader. I don't know if he's small groups pastor. I don't know what this is. We just know that he is someone with a real authority and a real influence and therefore affluence in, 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 in the scriptures, right? So we know all that about, about Jesus in this story. So you got, I mean, all this about this Jairus in the story. So we know that he's there. Now, we can actually probably assume that he's tried all sorts of other things. We can assume that he tried to get all of his life in order, emptied all of his sin. He's probably already atoned for his sins, paid prices, you know, sacrificed his animals, all these different things. And so when he is showing up here, this is dangerous for him because the religious leaders would go, that guy is, he is not one of us. He is actually the opposite of what we believe. He is saying all sorts of stuff that we don't believe in. So this guy's standing here. This is a moment of deep desperation for him, right? And so it says, he came and he fell at Jesus' feet 
pleading with him to come to his house. You know, pay attention to that, fellow Jesus' feet, you're going to see it again, and that's what I'm going to actually call us to at some point in the end, so just hold on to that. And he invites him to Jesus' house. Why? Because his only daughter, that language probably means actually only child, just happens to be a daughter, but if nothing else we know, it's at least his only his daughter. A girl of about 12 was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. So we've got to understand that this is guy has some feelings. He does not sure what to do. He's already played the fear route. I've got to fix her. I've got to do this. i get her from the doctors. I've got to do all these things. And it's not worked. And so as a moment of desperation, he comes and he falls at Jesus' feet and goes, I hear about you. I want my daughter to be healed. I do not believe this is the way it's supposed to be. I'm not supposed to bury my daughter. Right? Now, there's a lot of things that I um, have. I have all sorts of anxieties. I'm sure you're picking up on that. Uh, and um, yeah, for sure, thanks to the laughter there. That made me feel really good. <laughs> um, but when I think about my biggest fears, not being alone, all that kind of stuff, but when I think I'd like that, I'd that, the biggest fear would be my kids not knowing the Lord, right? Like, imagine eternity without them. I just can't, right? Which, by the way, uh, we take really serious around here, right? That's why we have, we, we staff and resource children's ministry really well. That's why we teach the same material over there as here, so we can help equip you to have these conversations. I mean, there'll be a hundred kids right now across the way, and they'll have great volunteers that all have security clearances, all those things, because we love kids really well, because I can't imagine that, right? By the way, you should jump in and volunteer and serve there. There's lots of kids. There's 177 of them last week, right? Just on the weekend, and so would, would challenge you to do that. But when I think about all my fears, the idea of my kids not knowing the Lord, meaning I am much more concerned about 10 billion years from now than I am about 10 minutes from now, right? Just my some big, big fear and anxiety and I know some of you have that and some pain in it and please let us walk through that with you, right? I can't imagine what that's like to, I don't, I don't know, I'm not there yet, but please, 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 let, don't, don't walk through that by yourself. Let us walk through that with you. But the other fear for me, because I'm a pastor, right? I've had to, I've had to preach horrific funerals, uh, suicides, m- murders, like, you know, gunfights, all sorts of children dying, car wrecks, all those kind of things. But at the, the top level of that fear is me imagining having to stand up and preach my child's funeral. I mean, what do you say? How do you say God's good in that? Like, how do you, especially thinking of my daughters, you know? And so, yeah, Jairus, he's in the middle of all this stuff. He's a, he's a synagogue leader. Like, does he have to show that God's still good in this? I mean, like, is he having to fake that? Like, is he allowed to cry in this? I mean, where is he in all this stuff? And we know that he's desperate and he comes to Jesus because his daughter is about to die. By the way, she does die, okay? And he's not there to be with her when she dies. So I just, so much pain in this. So he comes and says, I need you to come with me. And what we know is it literally says, and the crowd's about crushed him. This is busy and it's crowded and it's complicated, right? And so there's a bunch of people all vying for Jesus' attention. And this guy, I don't know if he fights it. I understand that. I'm swinging, I'm pushing. I got to get in front of Jesus because I can't fix this. So either God can fix this or there is no hope, but I'm going to at least see if God can fix it first, right? And so he finds him there. And a woman, so he got this, uh, was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years but no one could heal her. So we got two different things. 12-year-old girl, lady suffering this for 12 years. So and we go, well, I guess the scriptures want us to know, it says it in Mark 2, that it's 12. It's the number of um, perfection in the Bible. So uh, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples that carry out this mission. Um, even for us, we think about the 12 months of the year. So there's something in that. Don't want us to get too distracted on that. I would say that what Mark and Luke are saying is this is the perfect moment to see God do something pretty amazing. So that's probably worth paying attention to. And so imagine this. So Jesus is dealing with this grieving dad who is panicked and anxious, probably talking fast, slurring his words. I mean, he is, he is all sorts of anxious in front of Jesus, right? And then all of a sudden, there's also this woman that, that they kind of pan to who for 12 years has been bleeding. Now, this is a complicated Woman bleeding, I don't really want to spend time talking about that, but it, it does create uh, some issues. One, the scriptures are really clear that you're not supposed to be around anybody who's bleeding. It's considered unclean. So what that means is we know that this woman has been in isolation for 12 years. She doesn't get to go to the synagogue, doesn't get to go to the temple. She doesn't go get to have her sins atoned for at Yom Kippur. I mean, this is a pretty devastating thing. We can uh, assume she probably doesn't have any children or a husband because a husband couldn't even be in the same house as her. I mean, in terms of Levitical law, this is all sorts of complicated. So we're seeing this lady who is desperate. We could probably assume that she's tried all of her, um, she's tried everything she possibly could to get this healed. She's probably spent all of her money, all of her time, all of her energy, and she is hopeless and she is by herself. And she's probably having to be really, really incognito here because she is not supposed to be out in the crowd and she is there and people are rubbing shoulders with her, which she would have been ostracized and outcast for. If Jewish leaders would have saw that, they would have picked her up, carried her 100 miles or 100 kilometers away and dropped her off 
to make sure those things don't happen again. I mean, this is a serious thing. So here she is, and she is bleeding and has been bleeding for 12 years. This is a, it's hard for us to understand this, but it is a significant, significant Jewish ritual issue. Like this is uncleanliness at its, at its top level. And she would have felt shame and sorrow, and she would have had so much fear and not knowing what to do. So here she comes, these two different people in these moments where they're having all sorts of feelings that they don't know what to do with. And both of them, the only conclusion they know to is they go to this guy who could perhaps make things right, right? So um, verse 44, she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped. So in desperation, she goes, I can't fix this, but perhaps Jesus can. So she is going to come in the middle of this crowd. And I'm talking, I don't know if you've ever been in crowds where you can't move and that's so kind of uncomfortable. Or, oh my gosh, it makes me like, oh, it makes me want to go take a bath and just, well, you know, that sanitizer solution. Like I just want it hooked up to, you know, like all that kind of stuff, starting those, all these people everywhere. And so I don't know if you've been to those crowded things and like you go to the Eagles game, they're trying to get out and everybody's like, you know, drooling all over each other because they've all drank too much, you know. And um, I mean, luckily the, um, the crowd's kind of get a little lightened because most of those guys are in those jail cells in the bottom of the stadium. This is nuts, right? So anyway, he's trying to get out and there's all these people and, um, and, and then we find this woman and it says that she touches the cloak of his, his robe. That's, I mean, that's at that's a ankle level. You follow that, right? You understand the desperation of this. I mean, she is on her hands and knees reaching out to him in this crowd. You know when you yell fire the worst, in, a, in a really crowded room, the worst thing you can do is end up on the ground. You got that, right? I mean, like, and so she is in desperation. She's just trying to get to his feet, right? She's just trying to get to him, and she touches it, and immediately it says she's healed. Immediately, right? And so you go, okay, that's a miracle. Why does it happen? Is that because Jesus wants you to know that all the things you, when you touch him, you get fixed of all the things? No. He's showing you that there is a better way that will one day be for all of us. It doesn't mean that you're going to get healed of your ailment. It just, right now, it just means one day you will. One day you won't be in isolation. One day, if you trust him, he will make all things right. His goal was you and him forever, right? And so we see this moment. It happens for this lady, and then watch what happens next. He says, who touched me? Now, you can imagine this. She's probably a little nervous. First of all, she's not supposed to touch a man. She's unclean. He would have actually been asked not to do anything else that day because just by that touch, he would have also been unclean. So she just messed up his whole itinerant calendar for the day. In fact, he couldn't even go into this girl's house now as a result of this. So there's all sorts of complications. And he goes, who touched me? You can imagine she's nervous. They're confused. And watch this. Jesus asked. All the disciples are around, and it says, when they all denied it, they're like, not me, not me, I didn't touch you, I didn't touch you, you touched him, I didn't touch him. Right? It's like someone passed gas in the elevator. I'm like, not me, not me, right, not me. Right? There's all these guys that are in this thing. They're all denying it. We didn't do it, wasn't me, nobody did it. That's what's going on there. And so all of a sudden they're going, we all denied it, right? And then it said this, Peter said, gosh, I love Peter. Every time I read about Peter, I'm like, there is hope for me, Lord. There is this hope for me. He goes, master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. And, Peter, and Jesus goes, thanks, Peter, I had no idea, you know? Master, the people are around you. Oh, they are? I didn't realize that. I thought I was in a room all by myself. So you go, why in the world is he saying this? Is this Captain Obvious stuff? Is he just uncomfortable with silence? And like, I'll, I'll change subject. Hey, look at me, you know. Probably some of that. Peter is a ready shoot aim. Those people are terrible. Don't trust them with anything in your life, right? It's a joke. Uh, Maybe kind of a joke. Uh, but so you got some of that. Peter just fills gaps of silence awkwardly. Uh, you got that piece. But there's something else going on here, you know, like, he's basically saying, hey, traffic's backing up. Jesus, like, <laughs> you stay here. People are just coming, like, the goal is you got to keep moving, right? You got to keep moving. You do know that when you're getting out of the parking lot of the Eagles game. The minute you stop, you're in trouble. So you're not nice. Jesus doesn't live in your heart. You don't make eye contact with your You just keep on scooting. You just keep on scooting. You know exactly what I'm talking about. I'll pray for you guys, right? And so you just keep on scooting because you know the minute you stop, it's over. And so Peter's going, you got, you got, can't stop, right? Like, Jesus, you go into a dead girl's house or someone who's about to dead, and you need to stop to ask this question. So, watch what happens. But Jesus said, someone touch me. I know that power has gone out for me. So what we know here is even the solution to those things is not us fixing ourselves. There's something about Jesus giving us his power. By the way, it's a picture of the cross. The power goes out of him. And where does the power go if it goes out of him? Into us. Right, and so this, he says, I know because someone touched me and the power went out. Like there is something in this moment that happened. He wasn't looking for it. Maybe he's aware it's gonna happen. And so watch this. Verse 47, then the woman seeing that she could not go unnoticed, she came trembling. That sounds like fear to me. 
she came trembling. She just came face to face with the God, God who healed her. She knows she's healed and she's not sure how to respond. Was it, you know, defiant that she steal his power? Like, was she not supposed to do that? Is she make him unclean? I mean, there's all sorts of worries, right? All sorts of spiraling. She's coming up with all sorts of, you know, anxious thoughts of failing in advance. Is he going to ridicule me? Is he going to embarrass me? And Jesus is wanting this person to self-identify. You go, why in the world? Why does it matter? Why does he need her to speak? Fell on his feet in the presence of all the people, all the people. So he stops. There's a dead girl dying. By the way, this is really important. Uh, if you're a doctor in an emergency room, maybe you're the only doctor and there's someone in one room going in cardiac arrest and another person over here needs stitches on their you know, eyebrow. And there's this code, whatever it is, blue, yellow, orange. I don't know how all that stuff works. Sorry, doctors in the room. I'm, uh, uh, but there's something going on. And, and if the doctor goes, oh, I'm just going to stay over here and stitch you up, right? That's called malpractice. Right, like it's an inappropriate thing to do. There's a person dying over there, and Jesus pauses in this moment and goes, oh, I'm just going to have a conversation with this lady. No, no, let's talk about this. Have I pulled the seat? And literally, can you imagine Jairus? I can, because I would be Jairus going, hey, Jesus, I have a daughter you need to fix. She's fine. Come back later. Hey, you, how about you? Come here, girl. Come with me. Come with me. Whatever it is, right? Like in this moment, he pauses and decides to ask this question. This is, this is bad medical practice, right? Jesus is not being a very good doctor. Right? He's going to have to increase his insurance premiums over this. Right? More litigation. Here's what happened. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. So you go, why does this happen? Like, why does this matter? Why does Jesus need to pause in the middle of a girl dying? You know, in uh, Revelation, that's the book at the end of the Bible, John, one of Jesus' disciples, gets this beautiful vision of what uh, God, he writes some letters to the local churches to kind of correct them and get them back on the right path. And then he gives us a picture of the way that things are going to come. And he just sees this world we don't see. Like he just sees this supernatural world, all the stuff we experience in the, in the spiritual realm, that evil we all know exists, he just sees it. And in Revelation number 12, you see this battle happening. No, I'm not trying to scare you. Jesus is Lord of it. He's in charge, but you see it. And then in the middle of it, he, um, towards the end, he, he, he gives us an understanding of how that oppression is defeated. And this is what he says. He says the enemy is defeated. By two, he says by the blood of the lamb, meaning what Jesus does blood right that he literally covers us with his blood he adopts us we talk about this all the time you understand blue ink on adoption papers makes children adopted into a new family where Jesus' blood on the cross adopts us as his children right invites us in to be his brothers and sisters like god be our father and so it says the enemy is defeated by the blood of the lamb and then it says and what no no it's all jesus right and and it says and the word of people's testimonies and the result of the testimonies is people didn't even shrink from fear of death Right, there's something about this. He says, the enemy's defeated Why or what, by what? The blood of the enemy, what Jesus did, and the fact that people are talking about it. Here's the reality. There are two different pieces of this. One, we've got to deal with our fear and go, no, no, fear is just misplaced faith. I can't fix this, only Jesus can. But that strengthens our belief that God is good. But what else strengthens that belief? Other people's stories. Right, I am so encouraged when I hear what God does in your life. So encourage. In fact, we're as we think about these different podcasts, one of the things we have is working on the sermons on Sundays and Saturdays and answering the questions that. And then there's Bravely Honest, which is a podcast specifically kind of geared for women in our church. And kind of where we're going next is trying to do a long-form podcast of actually allowing you to share your story of what God does. There's something in you speaking out loud what God has done in your life that not only firms up your faith, but it's a gift to the rest of us. So when Jesus pauses, he's going to have her say something, but it's not for her. It's for all the other people listening. And she goes, look, I was desperate and I was afraid. And for 12 years, I tried everything else and it didn't work. So all I need to do was come and bring this to you, Jesus. Thanks for bringing it to me. So let me give you a picture of what this looks like. Look, that pain you're feeling is real. You weren't supposed to live this way. And one day, all things will be made right. But let me give you a glimpse right now of how that's going to happen in the future. You are healed, lady. Right? Now, may not happen for everybody, but at least you can see the goodness of God in this moment. And she was instantly healed. Now, verse 48, the scene changes. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. So he's going to look at her. He's going to invite her to walk away from that. And he says something really, really important here. He says, daughter, did you know in all the scriptures, all the scriptures in the New Testament when Jesus speaks, this is the only time in the scriptures where he uses the word daughter. Only time in all the scriptures. The only time that he calls someone daughter. This is important. So why does he do this? Why is this one person? My assumption is, remember when he got the boat, there was a daddy advocating for his daughter. Who was advocating for this girl? 
talked about it a couple weeks back, this idea that there's a woman, Samaritan woman, who is at the well, and she'd already had five husbands. She's on her six, looking for some kind of provision and protection, and she goes from one dude to the next dude. And my thought is, where is her dad, right? That's not happening to my girls. My girls, they are not gonna go from man to man to man. They can move back in with me. I'll renovate the basement and I'll even give them cats, right? And we joke about that. Like they can have that, right? Because there's something about being a father that goes, nope, advocate and protect and care for my daughter, right? I care for my daughters, right? And so um, what we can assume from two weeks ago in that story is either the dad was dead or a deadbeat, Right, there's a something in that. And so in this moment, Jesus changes the language and he calls her daughter, meaning, yeah, I know no one's been advocating for you. I know why you're afraid and felt like you had to do it all by yourself. Oh, but you don't. You got a dad who'll advocate you. And he calls her daughter, right? And then it continues. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. They want you to know he's a pastor, right? Your daughter is dead. Not very good uh, communication skills. That's not very nice. He said, don't bother the teacher anymore. So can you imagine this person just no awareness whatsoever? Says to Jairus, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Now imagine you're Jairus. This is easy for me. I am livid. I am livid at the lady who stood in the way of that. She could have come to Jesus later. I am so frustrated that if Jesus is really God, why in the world do you want a 12-year-old to die? Then I'm also thinking, why well, I'd never want to be next to my daughter on her deathbed? There's also no other place I'd want to be. Like, I don't want to be holding her hand and looking at her, either one of them, and going, hey, hey, baby, I love you. Like, speaking life into her, telling her all the things that she added value in this world and talking about one day when we'd be back together and I'd be sobbing, she'd be sobbing. And I just couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine where else. I couldn't imagine having to go find help and even leaving Julie to just sit there with our girl in that way, right? I can't, couldn't imagine any of those things. And this is the snare. So I imagine Jairus is angry and frustrated. And what's Jesus' response? Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. What do you mean don't be afraid? I'm playing all the scenarios. I'm never going to say goodbye to my daughter. I'll never see her again. We'll never, she'll never get to sit in my lap again. We won't get to watch that show. We won't be able to do that. We had these plans. The tickets were already bought, right? All these different things. He's going, no, 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 no. Don't be afraid. How do you mean not be afraid, Jesus? Remember, fear is misplaced faith. What are you going to do with any of that stuff, right? Don't be afraid. Instead, just believe, and she'll be healed. She'll be healed. Now, I want you to hear this wholeheartedly. If you trust in God with your life, you will always be healed. You will always be healed. You will always be healed. Always, always. Everything about you, it will be completely healed. Now, it may not happen in the time that you want. It may not happen in the time frame or in the way, but there will be a day where there will be no more tears, no more pain, and no more sorrow when you place all your hope and faith in Jesus right? That doesn't mean it's in your timeline. doesn't mean it's even before your death, but there will be a day that everything will be made right for you and your family. If you trust him, if your family trusts him, right? So he says, she'll be healed. So he doesn't know what that means. Now watch what happens next. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. So he's there. They're all in the house together, and he does some protection. I get this. I, I don't have time to talk about it, but I it's been in some really, really egregious environments where suicides happen, overdoses have happened, uh, cardiac arrest, seizures. I mean, I just have been in the room with parents and their children and just the most horrific things, seeing the most horrific scenes. And it's always interesting to see how the parents respond. Like they're closing their eyes and still petting the hair. I mean, it's like just, it's horrific, guys. It's just horrific. I just got these images in my mind and I can imagine Jesus being gracious in this going, I can't imagine this, but no one else needs to see this. No paparazzi needs in here. No one see, needs to see a blue girl laying on a bed, right? I mean, this is horrific. So Jesus takes a couple of the disciples, enough witnesses, and these are guys he's training, Peter, James, and John, Jesus, and the mother and father. And so they're in there. Verse 52, meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. That makes sense. A 12-year-old just died. That's painful. And he says, stop wailing. I don't think this is like, uh, condemnation. He just goes, hey, hey, stop wailing. Hey, hey, it's okay, right? Jesus said, she says, he says, she is dead, not dead, but asleep. This is a euphemism uh, when it talks about the healing that we all have. The worst thing that happens to us is eventually we'll fall asleep and then we'll wake up in the arms of Jesus. Right? That, that's the picture of the gospel, picture what happens. Uh, they don't get that. Um, verse 53 says they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. This isn't like, ha ha, Jesus is funny. This is contemptuous. I don't know if you've ever been in an argument with your spouse or with anyone else or in any kind of argument with your boss and you say something and uh, they do that little laugh at you. 
but they don't think you're funny. They think you're ridiculous. You know what I'm talking about? I have a lot of moments where I'm ridiculous, so it's, it's a fair um, judgment. But you know that laugh? So they literally are laughing at Jesus going, oh, you are ridiculous, man. Like, really? Really? You, you're coming in here, and you think she's, she's alive, so you, you got that moment there. And they left him knowing she was dead. You know, watch this, verse 54. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. So a couple questions for you. I want you to think about this out loud. Uh, I mean, in your head, not out loud, please. Uh, do you think Jesus needed to be in the room to heal her? Uh, did he even need to be in the same city? Uh, did he need to touch her to heal her? Did he need to speak to her? Then why does he do those things here? And by the way, when it says, my child, get up, this is a, oh my gosh, it's, uh, it's the Aramaic word, Talithia. It's like, hey, little girl, right? So we used to travel to Daytona Beach every year on, uh, uh, on Christmas Day, two and a half hours from our hometown in South Georgia to go see my grandmother. And since we got up early and didn't sleep much because we were all excited about presents, I'd always fall asleep in the car. And then we'd pull up into my grandmother's house and it was the same thing all the time. And they would, my mom would lean back there and I could still hear her voice. She'd go, Josh, Josh. Wake up, get your shoes on, wear a grandma's. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe your, your mom said the same thing. Wake up, get your shoes on, wear a grandma's. It's that kind of language. It's when you go and wake up your kid, and maybe you're gracious to your kids, and you're like, hey, baby, get up. I'm just like, whoa, what up, kid? Jumping on the bed, right? So this is very gracious. Hey, hey, sweetie, hop up. So Jesus is literally interacting with her like she has just been asleep for a little while. And he grabs her by the hand. So imagine this. When she opens her eyes, who's the first person she sees? Jesus. When she opens her eyes, what's the, uh, when, who's the first person she hears? Jesus. Who's the first person that she touches? Jesus. Literally, remember, this is miracles. God is showing you what's going to happen for us one day. One day we're going to wake up and we're going to be face to face with him. Now, I can imagine this was, this was filled with a ton of emotion, right? Her last moments, I don't know if she's wailing, I don't know if she's asleep, but she's sad, right? And I imagine there's tears running down her face. I imagine the mom's filled with snot, like all sorts of stuff. And so you can imagine as Jesus is there, she's waking up, and what is he doing? He's wiping away those tears. He's wiping away those tears. He's going, oh, here it is. Now, this, is, this isn't going to fix everything, but this is going to give you a glimpse of what's going to be fixed, right? And in Revelation 21, it says, there'll be a day where there'll be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrows and sadness. Guess what he says? And he will wipe away every tear from your eye. He will. So all that fear and all that sadness, all those feelings, they're real. And what the Bible is saying is Jesus will one day do that, and he is modeling that. Verse 55, her spirit returned. Spirit returned at once, and she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. He's so gracious. Hey, she needs a sandwich. Get her a biscuit, right? This has been hard for her. Are you sure she's not going to throw it up? No, she's good. She's good. Hey, why don't you get something? You, you want a cookie? Cupcake? What is it you want, little girl? You just died and came back to life. You probably deserve a cup. And by the way, we were going to be reading about this 2,000 years later, right? Verse 56, her parents were astonished. Of course they were. But he ordered them not to tell anyone what happened. What? This is the greatest story ever told. Why does he tell them not what I want to tell them what's happened. Because there is a way by which we see this story and think, well, that's what Jesus does. This is prescriptive. If he loves me, he'll bring back my grandmother from the death. Right? And so, no, no, you can't, you can't dangle the miracle. Because this isn't about whether or not you get the miracle. Because that makes G- Jesus your genie in a bottle, not Lord and Savior. He is more interested in you and him five billion years from now than whether or not tomorrow is okay for you. And yet he cares so much about tomorrow for you. He's asking you to bring all this stuff. So he's going, no, you can't talk about this. You can't talk about this. Her life will reflect it, but you can't talk about this because people are going to lose sight of this. They're going to say, nope, we just want Jesus to fix my problem now. Listen to me. He wants to fix your problem. He wants to fix your problem. But your biggest problem is not your marriage, your cancer, your unemployment. Your biggest problem is that you walk in fear because you have put faith in yourself rather than God. Your biggest problem is not those things in front of you. Your biggest problem is you can't relax and rest. And I feel like such a hypocrite standing in front of you saying this. Because our biggest problem is not that thing. Our biggest problem is we are convinced that we fix our problems ourselves, but we know that we can't, and so we all just lose. So what do you do with this? How do you respond? Well, let's survey those feelings. Survey every single one of them. What are the things that lead you to fear? What are those things that lead you to try to be Lord of your own life and try to fix your own problems that you cannot fix? And then bottle them up. And then where do you take them? Well, where does Jairus take them? Literally, to the feet of Jesus. Where does this woman take them? Literally, to the feet of Jesus. And so while you've seen some things happen here, particularly the rock wall behind us, that wasn't because we wanted to be fancy. It was because we really wanted you to be able to see the cross at all times. We wanted that to be highlighted. To remember that all of our problems and all of our solutions are not found in great best practices. They're actually found in what Jesus did for us on the cross. In that moment, he said you were loved beyond measure. And that he was willing to pay the price for all your brokenness, right? All that, his love and his grace and his wrath, all displayed there. 
And so, while a lot of churches have these altars, you can come in and lay your stuff down. What I want you to see in this place, what I want you to see in this place is this is not just an altar. What this is, is this is symbolic of you being able to come before a suffering Savior who paid the price for your sin. And so perhaps that's what you do. Maybe you actually need a tangible, bold step where you go, I gotta bottle all this up and I just gotta take it somewhere and I don't know where to take it. And I'd say the only place you can take it, the only place where there is even a hope of it being fixed is not in you or what you can do, but at the feet of Jesus. And so what's gonna happen is the band's gonna come up and they're gonna lead us in a song. And as you do what you want to, if you need a bold, tangible moment going, I just need to bottle all this up and take it somewhere, I would just say, could we figuratively see this as a place that you could take it to Jesus' feet, that you could come and you can pray and other people can pray with you and go, yep, not our will, but your will be done. Yep, Jesus, is all you, not me. And so I want you to know that's available to you. You want to stand in your seat? You want to do what you want to do? That's up to you. I just want you to know the next tangible step for each of us is to bottle up that fear, bottle up all those feelings, put them in a place and go, Jesus, I can't fix this, but you can and take it to the one who saves, the one who saves, the one who can. And so we're going to sing this song to highlight that. Would you stand with me as we sing, as we pray? Jesus, um, man, I just confess that this is a lot easier to talk about and a lot harder to do. And so, God, I just pray that you would release us from fear. And by that, I mean release us from putting our faith in ourselves and putting our faith in having to fix the problems and trusting fully that you are Lord and you are Savior and you're in charge and you are King. And so, God, regardless of how you respond to us, we know that when we pray to you and bring you these things, you're either going to respond in the way that we pray or God, you're going to respond in the way that we would pray if we could see and know all things. So God, in this moment, we can release ourselves from the pressure of having to perform and fix and rest in you as the one who saves and heals. And so Jesus, would we find great comfort and courage in that. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.